morning. So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea, chapter 5. Hosea, chapter 5. I'm going to take a, a break from our one week break from our series on Hosea. Uh, next Sunday, I'm going to finish the book of 2 Corinthians. We, we went all the way through the book of 2 Corinthians, but I, except for the last couple of verses, uh, because I wanted to start the Hosea series right after Easter, and I got to finish that last little section, which includes in it uh, the passage that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So uh, people have asked about that. I'm not, I'm not going to miss that little set. And that's, that's, not the only, that's not the only part of the verse. There's more to it than that, but we'll finish that next week, and then we'll be back in Hosea. So we're going to read Hosea chapter 5 all the way through. So if you have your Bibles, open them, follow along. Remember the story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet called by God uh, to marry a woman, a wife of, pro- of promiscuity, and have children of promiscuity. And so he does. And God said, That's the, I'm going to use this as an example to you of what Israel's like with me, how they were made for me, and yet they don't follow me. And so let's pick up the story now, Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says this, Hear this, priests, pay attention, house of Israel. Listen, royal house, for the judgment applies to you, because you've been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Rebels are deeply involved in slaughter. I'll be a punishment for all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have acted promiscuously. Israel is defiled. Their actions do not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of promiscuity is among them, and they do not know the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. Both Israel and Ephraim stumble because of their iniquity. Even Judah will stumble with them. They go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but do not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They betrayed the Lord. Indeed, they gave birth to illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them along with their fields. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Raise the war cry in Beth-Avon. Look behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation on the day of punishment. I announce what is certain among the tribes of Israel. The princes of Judah are like those who move boundary marks. I will pour out my fury on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, for he is determined to follow what is worthless. So I'm like rot to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent a delegation to the great king. But he cannot cure you or heal your wound, for I'm like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. Well, let's talk this morning on the subject judgment applied. There's, there's a difference between theory and application. Between theory and application. So you might say in theory, I should wear sunscreen. I don't want to get a sunburn or maybe skin cancer is a concern. And so in theory, I ought to wear some sort of skin protection, maybe you think. But, in, but the application is different. The application is where you put it on. You put it on your nose or your bald spot, speaking theoretically. Or you, know, you put it wherever it's needed. Well, application and theory are different. And when I talk about judgment, that's for a lot of people just like it's a theory. God, sure, God can judge people who do wrong, but application, well, that's what gets personal. And so it's a subject that is not, people are not super excited about, but we need. So let me, let me tell you a story. So this week, um, I went to Texas. Some of you know we have a daughter and son-in-law who are there. 
um, and with their six uh, children, which all, all girls, my six, uh, six of my granddaughters are there in Texas. And so weeks ago, we helped them move, and then my daughter had surgery, and so my wife stayed and helped her during the time in the hospital, helped with the babies while she was in the hospital, and then the recovery time, and that just ended up being an extended period of time. And so this week, I went down and uh, helped uh, just a couple of days, and then brought Vicki back. Thank the Lord for that. And one day, I was there with the six girls, six girls, the oldest nine, the youngest a baby. And I was sitting one day in their, in their house, they live out in the country, and the older girls were out playing on the porch, and I was holding the little baby, just sitting there on the couch, holding the little baby, older girls on the porch. And I could see out the window a table, just a rickety old table. They leave out there, the girls will, you know, play out on that table, write things, just a little four-chair sort of table. And then I saw some boots on the table through the window. And I saw a little girl in those boots on top of the table. And I, I said, this is something I probably should note to others. And so I said to her mom, who was getting better by this time, but I, I said to her mom, one of the girls is on that table. And before mom could get up, I saw another pair of boots with another little girl in those boots and a bicycle, a little girl's bicycle, a small little girl's bicycle that they had hauled up on top of that table. And six-year-old and not yet four-year-old up on that table with a bicycle. And so I, I told mom that. And so their mom went outside and she suggested to them that that was a really bad idea and that danger would ensue if they didn't stop immediately. And so somehow those girls had got in their mind that it would be a good idea for them to ride their bike on that table. And I can't even imagine if they had been boys what this would have, how this would have gone. But they were, these little girls somehow thought it's a good idea to get on this rickety old table and ride a bike on that table. Now, what would have happened had there not been some intervention? What would, what would have taken place? I mean, it could not have been good. And God in heaven talks to us very often about judgment. We don't like the subject very much, but we need it. And quite frankly, we will never appreciate grace or mercy or God's love or compassion unless we understand the reality of judgment. So the Bible talks to us often about judgment. It tells us the danger of being in a metaphorical on a metaphorical bike on the top of a metaphorical table. It tells us the danger of this, of going our own way instead of God's way and the results that follow. Really, the story of Hosea has been about the danger of Israel being promiscuous and going the wrong direction instead of following God's way, going their own way. And, and really, it's a lesson not just for Israel, but for us. So let's note some lessons that we learn about judgment applied. In fact, if you'll notice, the Bible says here in verse 1, it starts with these words, hear this priest, pay attention house of Israel, listen royal house. So he's speaking to the priests, the royalty, the people, the leaders and the people as a whole. For the judgment, the Bible says, for the judgment applies to you. So I suspect Israel thought something like this. Well, yeah, God judges. I mean, theoretically, 
God judges, like Assyria, when they mess up, or Moab, or one of Egypt. When one of those countries does bad, God, yeah, sure, he ought to judge those people. But then the Lord said, the judgment applies to you. And boy, that's where it gets more personal. But that's where we need it more. That's where the benefit comes. So let's note three things about judgment applied. I just want you to write these down. And can I just tell you, hope is coming in this, okay? It doesn't sound like it much when I talk about judgment, but I want you to see there's a good result from this. So let's stay with me through this as we talk about the judgment applied. Number one, judgment applied is just. That is, God is a just God. This is both reassuring for me and terrifying for me to realize God is just and that he's holy. And God is just and God is holy. And we need to remember that. Certainly God is love. I am thankful that God is a loving God, but God is also a just God. He's a holy God. And he does not, a just God doesn't just ignore the reality of sin or the reality of judgment, but it is applied. Let's note some things about this. Uh, First, would you know what our sin is against God? So when we're sinning, the Bible says it's against God. Verse one says, the judgment applies to you because... You have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. So Mizpah is the name of a couple of cities in Israel. It means a watchtower or a lookout. It's about a place that's elevated. Tabor is a mountain, Mount Tabor. It's called more often. And it's, these are places where Israel uh, would, would go to do fall, worship false gods. They were called high places. When you're reading along in the Old Testament, you'll see high places mentioned frequently. And they were places where the people, instead of worshiping God and going to the temple and following the Lord as he prescribed worship, that's where they went to worship false gods. Because I just noticed this in life, and you watch in your own life as well. When we don't worship God, we, we find a substitute. Have you noticed that? We find a substitute. So if you're not following God, if you're not worshiping him, you were made to worship. And there's this deep in us, this desire to worship But if we don't worship the Lord as he tells us to worship him, we have a tendency to worship in some other way. We worship uh, possessions or we worship, in our culture, we worship power or, heaven forbid, we sometimes worship ourselves. You make a terrible object of worship. But if you're not careful, you find yourself worshiping yourself, your wishes, your desires, your wants, your... happens all the time. And God is saying, man, you... You've been a snare at Mizpah, and you've been a net spread out on Tabor. That is, everyone passing by is drawn into the substitute worship, into something lesser than my better plan for them. And he's saying, sin is against me, God is saying. Notice as well that our sin is known by God. Verse 3 says, the Lord says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you've acted promiscuously, and Israel is defiled. So like Hosea and Gomer, Hosea marries this woman named Gomer, and she's living a promiscuous life, and maybe she tried to cover it, but man, God in heaven knows our sins. We try to cover it. We can come, like you can come to this place. I, I can't know what's going on in your heart. So just, you could smile, and you could act nice here, and how would I know? But God in heaven knows, and we can't hide from him. And so this is sort of the bad news for us. God knows about us. He still loves us. He still offers his grace and mercy, but God knows us, and we don't hide from him. You can hide from others, and I think you can kind of lie to yourself and almost 
deceive yourself, but God knows. He knows what's going on. He knows the reality of your life, even the parts that you want to justify or cover. Number three, our sin separates us from God. Uh, Verse four says, their actions do not allow them to return to their God, and the spirit of promiscuity is among them. They do not know the Lord. Or verse six, they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but do not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So sin, here's the problem with sin. It separates us from God. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, it means you're separated from grace. For the lost, it means we're separated from grace. So maybe you've had this confused in your own life. You may have thought, well, listen, I'll get to heaven by being good enough. You know, I'll try to be nicer. I'll go to church once in a while. I'll try to do some good things. And the Bible says our sin separates us from God. God is holy. I mean, heaven's perfect. And I've sinned. And I'm not. So how could I ever hope to go to heaven? So I can't self-improve my way to perfection. I can't self-improve my way to holiness. I mean, perfection is too high a standard. And so the Lord is saying to, reminding us of this, that we're not saved by our goodness. We can't be good enough. We can't go to church enough times. We can't be nice enough. We can't be baptized enough times. We can't be kind enough to go to heaven because we have already sinned against God and that separated us from God who is holy but here's what the Bible is teaching. Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christ lived the perfect life for us and died the death we deserved on the cross and provided the miracle we need. And so if you will trust Christ as Savior, the Bible says Christ takes your sin upon himself and he gives to you his holiness, his righteousness, so that you can be forgiven and declared holy as though you had never sinned, fully forgiven. That's what God does in salvation. And if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, can I just urge you, implore you, plead with you to give your life to Christ? Don't just try to like, be a little nicer or be a little more religious. Recognize that you're lost without Christ, that you can't save yourself. And repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. And receive Him as your Savior. Christ will save you. But when I say sin separates us from God... For the, for the lost, it separates us from grace. But for the believer, it separates us from fellowship. So if you've trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible says God has forgiven you, and he fully forgives, and he does it perfectly. But when we live in disobedience to God, and when we live in sin, it, it damages the fellowship that God wants with us. You kind of know that in your heart, don't you? We sort of want to run from God. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? how they were made for fellowship with God, how they'd walk with the Lord, but when they sinned, they hid from God. That's what we often do. Sin does that to us. It makes us want to run from God, hide from God. It, it, makes us, it separates us from the fellowship God wants for us. God wants fellowship with you. And so we think, well, I'm not so bad. We compare ourselves to others, but the Bible reminds us God is just. And our, the standard of comparison is Him. I have an acquaintance. He's a middle-aged guy, ministry acquaintance. I don't know him really well, but I know about him. I know he's, he got out of shape, and he said I want, he wanted to get in shape as a middle-aged guy, and so he started running. And I saw the other day he ran a trail, ran a trail race, which is if, like if it's not enough pain to just run on flat pavement, you find a place with rocks and hills and stuff just to make it more painful and more difficult, and that's what he did. He ran trail run. And as a middle-aged man, he did this race, and he's amazingly he announced that he had gotten 
uh, in his age group. He got second place in his age group. He hadn't really been running that long. Second place in his age group. Super impressive until you found out there were only two guys in his age group that did the race. I mean, so instead of saying, I'm in last, he said, I'm in second place. And in comparison, it sounds great. And you could say, I'm not so bad. Because like that relative of mine is way worse. But what if the standard of comparison is the holiness of God? I mean, how do you, how do you stack up then? How's that comparison? And I want, you know, if God judged our nation, I love our nation. I'm thankful for our country, the freedoms we have, the blessings we enjoy. But if God, if God judged our nation, he would be just in doing so, wouldn't he? Can I make it a little more personal? If God judged you or me, he would be just in doing so. And you will never appreciate God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. If you think of sin as no big deal, but I'm telling you, the Bible says it's such a big deal. And it's so, it, it, it's so damaging that it separates us from God and it leads to death. And let's, let's go to it. Second principle, will you stay with me? This hope is coming. So I said judgment applied is just. Number two, judgment applied is consequential. There are always consequences. Always consequences to our sin. Our choices always lead somewhere. The path you're on right now is leading somewhere. And there are these moments in life where judgment just reminds us of the consequences, where events are so consequential. Maybe you've had a moment in your life like that. You got a diagnosis. And everything in life changed when the doctor said whatever it was. Or that moment when you faced that great difficulty or had that terrible accident. There are these moments that are so consequential in life. What judgment applied is consequential. And God is saying to Israel in this fifth chapter of Hosea, man, consequences are coming because sin is leading somewhere. The path you're on is leading somewhere. Let's note some of the ways sin was leading. Sin was leading first to battle. Verse 8 says, uh, blow the ram's horn and the trumpet in Ramah. It's talking about the shofar and the trumpet. And it's saying battle is on its way. And there's always a battle. By the way, you're in a spiritual battle, whether you realize it or not. I think the enemy sometimes loves to keep you in the dark about the battle. But there's a spiritual battle raging right now around you. The spiritual battle for your soul. The spiritual battle for your eyes and your mind and your thoughts. Your life, your actions. The enemy is looking for every opportunity to take advantage of you, and sin always results in battle. Secondly, sin results in, it leads to desolation. Verse 9 says, Ephraim will become a desolation on the day of punishment. This is one of the tribes of Israel, really an, an example of the northern kingdom, the country of Israel. He's saying that's going to be desolated, and it would be eventually. It would be desolated by sin and all the damage. God made it to be the bountiful land, the beautiful land, the Beulah land. God made it for something more, and yet it would be a land of desolation. Sin leads to defeat. Verse 11 says Ephraim is oppressed and crushed in judgment. And, and notice what it says here. For he is determined to follow what is worthless. In my devotional time, when I came to that phrase, I just underlined it in my Bible. He is determined to follow what is worthless. And I thought, how many times have I and others just followed the wrong things? That, like we chase after things that don't even matter. And we don't follow, we ignore the treasure God has for us all around us, and we chase after these worthless things that won't matter one moment in eternity. And the Bible tells us 
Sin leads to decay. Verse uh, 12 says, I'm like rot to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. Sort of like a cavity in a tooth that just leads to continuing problems and eventually the loss of the tooth. That's what sin continues to decay you from the inside. It leads to disappointment. Verse 13 says, Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah's womb, and so they went to Assyria, not to God, but to Assyria, to, a, to the great powerful political leader of the day. But the Bible says he cannot cure you or heal your wound. And whatever you're looking for, if you think politics can solve your problems, or if you think wealth could solve your problems, or if you think a new relationship could solve your problems, you will be disappointed. Sin always leads to disappointment. God has something so much better for you. His way is so much, so much better, but there are consequences to going the wrong way. Get on the wrong path, it leads somewhere. My granddaughter's on that table with her bike. Man, that was leading somewhere. I mean, consequences were coming. Fortunately, there was a mother who was wise enough to say, that's not a good idea. There were adults who could say, this is going to lead to danger. And God in heaven who loves you keeps reminding you of these truths because he loves you, because he wants what's best for you. But I want you to note a couple of things here. At some point, mercy ends and judgment begins. And I hate to have to say it, but I just want you to know the truth. At some point, mercy ends and judgment begins. So if you just said, listen, I can just do what I want. It's no big deal. It doesn't really matter. God's mercy in your life is all that has kept you from this point of facing all the consequences that you're going to that you could face but God's judgment comes surely and Israel for years had just rebelled against God and ignored God and finally God said all right all right if you if you don't want the mercy then I'll give you the judgment if you don't want the better thing I'll give you the lesser thing and then notice well that at some point it becomes too late or I might say it this way there's no such thing as someday. There's no such thing as someday. Some of you have justified your life or your activities or your choices by saying, well, someday. I mean, someday I'll trust Christ as Savior. Or even believers say, someday I'll get right with God. Or someday I'll serve the Lord well. Or someday I'll get active. Or someday I'll be obedient to God in this area. Or I, I, someday, there's no such thing as someday in a sense I mean, you can never be saved in future tense. You can't be saved. You can't serve in future tense. You can't obey in future tense. It's present tense. And you have this day. You don't have someday. You have this day. I want to ask you to follow him this day because at some point I've had many people, people I care about deeply, who I shared the gospel with long, a time, long ago, and they seriously thought about it. They hardly give it a thought now. Hardly a thought now. I've known people who were at one time tender to the things of God, people who were believers who followed the Lord, but at some point they said no to the Lord enough that they hardly think about the Lord any longer. And they've just drifted so far from, so far from God, it's as though every opportunity, instead of the fellowship with God that he wants them to have, instead they get the judgment that the consequences that follow. Whatever path you're on is leading somewhere, and it's going to result in consequences for you. It's inevitable. It happened in Israel. You know, it's too late for Israel, by the way. It's too late. The northern kingdom um, went into captivity and never to be heard of again. But it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. 
And maybe God brought you to this place this day because God wanted you to remember that, that judgment applied is just and judgment applied is consequential. But there's a third thing I want you to note. Judgment applied is purposeful. And I want you to go to verse 15 because I promised you there's some hope. So let me start with no hope. Verse 15 says, I will depart and return to my place. That's, this is the Lord speaking. I will depart and return to my place. That's judgment applied. And then this word, until. So I will depart and return to my place. That's judgment applied. God's saying, all right, you don't want me? All right, I'll leave you to your own devices. And then he says, until. And the word until is hope applied. It's hope applied. The Lord is saying, I'm going to let you have your own life, go your own way, find your own consequences. I'm going to give you judgment applied until, boy, there's hope there. There's hope there. Until. Perhaps the Lord has given you an until in life. He's reminding you that though you're going to suffer the consequences of the choices you make without him, there is an until. There's hope applied to your life as well. Let's note what the Bible says here about the hope applied. It says until, first, until they recognize their guilt. This has to do with confession. Boy, there's power in confession. I mean, God already knows our sin, but confession is where we agree with God. The New Testament word for confession is, a, is instructive here. The New Testament word for confession is a compound word that says literally to say the same thing or to say the same as. And confession is not informing God, it's agreeing with God. It's where we begin to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. So if you've justified sin, well, you're not agreeing with God. You're saying it's okay, though God says it's not. Or however you've ignored it, or run from it, or justified it. But when, when we confess, we're saying, all right, I'm going to recognize my guilt. God, I am guilty before you. Listen, we don't come to God saying, God, look at me, how great I am. You're lucky to have me. We come to God guilty. And God loves us enough to forgive that guilt because Jesus paid the price on the cross of Calvary. He is able to cleanse our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. So I want to ask you to confess to God. Just recognize your guilt. You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to ignore it. You don't have to pretend. God knows it. If he's convicting you, he's convicting you because you're guilty, but so that you will confess that guilt so that you will do something about it. The Bible says until they recognize their guilt, and then it says until they seek my face. And seek my face, the Bible says. After we confess our sins, we can return to God. This is really the heart of what revival is. When we seek God's face again, some of you trusted Christ as Savior long ago, and, and at some point you ran from God, but God has been waiting for you to come back like the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son came back, the prodigal son found a father who was ready for him and who cared about him and welcomed him back and God in heaven wants revival for you return to him seek his face again instead of seeking your own way going your own direction seek the face of God and can I just tell you God doesn't just want you to want the things he has for you God wants you to want him because God in heaven doesn't just love the things you have or the things you can do for him God loves you a relationship is not just just about what you can do for someone it's about the person themselves and God in heaven wants you to seek him, not just his blessings, not just his forgiveness, but him. 
just as God in heaven loves you, not just the things you can do for him. The Bible says, until they recognize their guilt and seek my face, they will search for me in their distress. In their distress. So often God uses distress as a means by which we begin to search for God, to return back to him. God is saying, when, when things get bad enough for Judah, they will see their need for me in return. God often uses distress. Some of you are facing distress right now, and maybe for lots of reasons. Some of it just the judgment on the fallen world itself. But don't let that distress go to waste, the pain or the problem or the difficulty you're facing. God can use that to help you to seek him and to see that he has a better way for you and that he wants you to experience his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his love. He wants you to return. He wants you to he wants you to recognize and seek his face and search for him in your distress. Think of it like this. So our sin leads to judgment. And our judgment leads to distress. And our distress leads us to search for God, to confess, to seek his face, and to search for him in our distress. And that leads us to his presence where he loves and forgives and cleanses some of you, God brought you to this place this day. Now, God allowed you to hear this message this day because he wants you to see that his judgment has a purpose. It's been applied to your life because he has something better for you. And hope is applied as well. And God who will tell the truth about judgment, and man, it can be painful, will use that in your life until God will... Man, he'll let you, let you go your own way until you're willing to confess, God, man, I, I am guilty before you. And I don't come to you just like, you're lucky to have me, God. God, I come to you guilty. But you come to me able to forgive. And I come seeking your face. Not just the things you have for me, but you. Because you love me. Not just the things I do for you, but you love me. And God, I search for you because this distress, this pain I'm facing reminds me that you are better and you have something better for me. And you will use these circumstances and these difficulties and this distress in my life to show me the better thing, the better way, the better person you are for me. So Father, this day, man, I want judgment applied so that through this, I can see hope applied. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we pray, let's just do a, a little business with the Lord. If you're lost and God brought you to this place and is convicting you that you are a sinner, he's doing that so that you can see your need for a Savior. Christ lived for you and died for you and rose from the grave for you. Would you repent of your sin Place your faith in Christ, what he did for you on the cross, not in yourself, not in your good works, not in your goodness, but in Christ, and receive him as Savior. Right where you are today, would you ask him to save you? Christ can save you. Christian, maybe God brought you to this place and he allowed you to hear this message. Because God in heaven wants you to see the path that you're on that is leading somewhere. That you're on some metaphorical table on some little bike trying to 
think I'm going to run my life and do my own thing without any consequences, but God's reminding you well, there are always consequences that follow. The path you're on will always lead somewhere. And maybe the Lord is saying to you through distress, through, through judgment, through pain, through difficulty, through conviction, that he has a better way for you. And he, wants, he made you for fellowship with him. And this day, would you return to him? Would you just confess the reality of your guilt? Would you just seek his face again? Not just what he can do for you, but him? And through that, would you discover, once again, that when you search for him, and he is there, and he, he is filled with grace and mercy, and forgiveness. Father, I thank you for the power of your word and thank you for teaching us the truth. Judgment can be painful, but it can be used by you to lead us to hope, to grace, to mercy, to forgiveness. Lord, will you use this in the lives of people who need to be saved and draw them to yourself? And Lord, will you use this in the lives of believers to help us, those of us who, as we tend to run from you or stray from you or justify wrong activity or actions, would you remind us you have something better for us? Or would you call us back into right relationship with you? Because you love us and care about us enough to tell us the truth. And that truth can set us free. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.